Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld, Bible teacher for Back to the Bible Canada. Before today's program, I'd like to share with you two important truths. One, the study of God's Word and effective Bible teaching are essential for spiritual growth and maturity. There is no replacing the Bible for understanding God and His plan and purpose for our lives. Second, the Bible teaching resources of Back to the Bible Canada, including this program, depends on the support of those who listen and share our heart for ministry. June is our fiscal year end, and my hope is that you would join us in reaching our goal of $300,000. Reaching this goal will both sustain and allow Back to the Bible Canada to embrace new Bible teaching opportunities in the future in Canada and internationally. Would you join us? Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to make your donation today. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series, I've Got Questions, today with a message entitled, God's Love for His People, and we'll cover suffering and the assurance of salvation. So turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Let's face it. There is no good news in the Bible if it is not this. God is love. Listen to 1 John 4, 16. For this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In other words, learn from God what it is to love, and just like Jesus, who gave his life for us, let's give our lives for others. Listen to 1 John 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then in order to bring home the idea of what it means for God to be love, verses 9 and 10 say, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then not satisfied with that, verse 11 adds, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. From front to back, the saving news of Jesus is a message of love. God loves us. God sent his son because of love. God saves and rescues us from sins because even while we were enemies of God, yet he still loved us. And once knowing that, what can we do but to love our enemies as well? Listen, if you don't love your enemies, you're most unlike God, for you were an enemy of God. What if God treated you the way you treat your enemies? So here's the truth. The greater part of the world hates their enemies. And so there it is, this wonderful thing called the love of God, that God would look on me with all my sin and love me is astonishing. The reason I believe it is because God who cannot lie has told me it's true. But there are people who have a great deal of difficulty believing that. Let me suggest two of the reasons for it. The first reason has to do with the sufferings in this world. Why, God, don't you rescue me from my sufferings And the second reason, I'm so conscious of my own sins, I can't believe that God would love me. How can I know my sins are forgiven? As you may know, this short one-week series is about answering questions that you might have. The questions may be contemporary questions, but the answers take us back to the ancient foundations of our faith. So let's start with today's first question. How can a God of love allow so much suffering in the world? War, injustice, poverty, 
crime, persecution, disease, disappointments, and the breaking apart of relationships with people whom we love. Suffering is everywhere, and it seems that in most cases, God doesn't intervene and stop the suffering. And what do we make of that? Is there a, an answer to the dilemma of suffering? Well, yes, there is, but I must say, I can't answer the question individually. That is, I can't answer the question of why any given individual suffers. We can, however, give some general answers to the dilemma of suffering. So answer number one, suffering exists in a world that is estranged from God. For me, the truly perplexing question is not why there is suffering, but why there is any good and kindness and justice and mercy in the world. If we have sinned against God, which we have, and the wages of sin is death, which it is, why then are so many of us enjoying so much from God's hand? Daily food, air to breathe, people to love, things to enjoy, successes to savor. Why? You see, we mistake what's going on. We think that in some fashion, we have deserved those blessings, and that when they're withheld, we ask why. Instead, as Romans 2 verse 4 reminds us, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So when we're doing well, it's God's love that brings blessing to our lives. So the first reason that suffering exists is that the world is estranged from God, but God in mercy has withheld the full extent of suffering from a rebellious world. So now here's answer number two. It's an answer that Jesus once gave to the seemingly random nature of human suffering. Listen to what he said. I'm reading Luke 13, 1 to 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I hope you heard that. When that seemed like a freak accident, a tower fell down, crushed 18 people. The people thought maybe those people were worse sinners than the rest of us. And Jesus denied that. They were not worse sinners. But did you notice how Jesus didn't answer the question? He didn't say they weren't sinners and therefore they didn't deserve it. He also didn't say, well, look, freak things happen. And really that's the result of living in a fallen world. Bad things happen. And I'm so sorry it happened to those guys. No, 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 no. He said, when you think of these things happening, see it as a divine warning. The question is not, why did these people suffer? The real question is, why didn't I suffer along with them? It's surely not my righteousness. It must be the mercy of God. Now, I could almost hear the response. But why doesn't God display the same mercy that I received on those who have received none, on those who died when the tower suddenly and unexpectedly collapsed on them? Well, in truth, Jesus didn't answer that question. I would imagine he doesn't because God in infinite wisdom has decided not to reveal that to us. But God has chosen to reveal that suffering in the world is a merciful divine warning to those who have escaped. It's a call for us to be reconciled to God. 
Ah, but here we might have another question. How is it that when a person is reconciled to God, there still is suffering? Why do people who have had their sins forgiven still suffer, seemingly like the rest of the human race? Ah, but here I think the Bible does have the answer. Indeed, the Bible spends a great deal of time both telling us that believers do suffer and telling us the reason for it. Let me give you five quick reasons why believers suffer. First, suffering is given by God because suffering is intended to produce beneficial results in our lives. Romans 5, 3 to 5, Paul speaks about endurance and character and hope. And in James 1, 2 to 4, James speaks of steadfastness leading to a mature faith. Second, suffering is a discipline from God. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 7 says that suffering is a discipline of the Lord, and the Lord disciplines or trains his people through suffering. Third, suffering produces humility. Listen to Paul's own experience with this one, and it's recorded in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You know, Paul is saying, were it not for my sufferings, well, I would have become an egomaniac, but suffering humbled me, and I feel the same way. God is determined not to allow me to be proud, and so out of love for me, he continues to humble me through the difficulties that I face and the suffering that I endure. And fourth, Suffering opens the door to all manner of opportunities that would not have come to us any other way. You know, in one example in the book of Philippians, Paul writes that his chains gave him a chance to share the gospel with Caesar's elite Roman guard. Had he not been arrested in Jerusalem, were it not for the fact that he had received no proper trial in Caesarea, well, he would never have appealed to Rome. And there, as he awaited his trial before Caesar's tribunal, an opportunity was given to him to share the gospel with the guards who made up Caesar's elite Roman praetorium. Without Paul's suffering, no such possibility would ever have come his way. And you might look at some of your own sufferings that gave rise to God's opportunities. And finally, suffering will focus our minds on the things that really matter. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's because suffering is going to refocus us and provide us with a clarity about the things that matter most and about the things that don't matter at all. And here's the wonder of it all. Suffering is God's loving act, both for the believer and for the unbeliever. You know, for the unbeliever, he or she is no longer tempted to think flippantly about what lies before us and about the difference between the present and the eternity. And for the believer, well, suffering conforms us to the image of Christ and focuses our minds on that which matters most. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. As a part of our celebrations, we want to invite you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean Oasis of the Seas. 
From February 3rd to 10th, join Phil Calloway and friends in the Western Caribbean for a week of laughter, fellowship, and spiritual refreshment like only Phil can offer. Enjoy music and worship with award-winning musical guest Rika Seward and begin the morning with devotions from InDoubt ministry leader Isaac Dagno. Is it time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a much-needed break to a sunny destination? We'd love for you to consider taking your next vacation with Laugh Again and Phil Calloway for the trip of a lifetime. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. Laugh Again, truth bringing laughter to life. The second question I want to answer today is the common question about assurance of salvation or the assurance of God's love. Is it possible for any person to know with certainty whether or not they will go to heaven, whether or not their sins are forgiven, or whether or not God has accepted him or her into his family? I can't imagine a more important question. And the answer to the question is, we can have confidence. Consider, for instance, John 20, verse 31. You know, in that verse, John tells us why he wrote the Gospel of John. He says, These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, in the book of John, the life that John refers to, it's eternal life. If eternal life is precisely that, eternal life, then we have to assume that John says, I wrote the book of John to help you believe in Jesus, and in the process of believing in Jesus, you will come to have enduring life that lives with God in heaven for all eternity. Okay, the Bible's clear. You can know that you have eternal life. Now consider what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Did you notice that? The mark of assurance that we have received salvation, well, it doesn't come from seeing Christ physically, but by believing in Christ. Now, that being said, let me now take you to a scripture that might cause some concern. 2 Peter 1 verse 10 has a context. And the context is that we are to flee from the corruption of sinful desire. Instead, we're to supplement our faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and brotherly affection. Now to 2 Peter 1 verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So notice the command, make sure you are one of the called, one of the elect. Well, the way to do that is to see that you're practicing the kinds of qualities that Peter has been speaking about. And it's right here that a great many Christians begin to fear. I've not been very self-controlled. I've not been godly enough. I'm afraid that perhaps I might be like one of the ones that Jesus warned about, that in the final day he will say, I never knew you. And by the way, that's a legitimate concern. How can I know that my faith is genuine or is it after all simply a fraud? This becomes especially so when someone reads those troubling passages of scripture. 
1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And Hebrews 10, 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Oh my! If you don't cease from sin, don't say you've been born of God. At least that's what those passages say. And by the way, you'd better take those passages seriously. Don't you dare say, well, you know, I prayed to ask Jesus into my life and therefore I must be born again. And even if I make a practice of sinning, I know I'm still going to be okay. Well, you might believe that because maybe you've been taught that, but know this. The Bible in numerous places warns you that that is decidedly untrue. Aren't convinced yet? Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Want more proof? 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't let anyone deceive you on this matter, says the Bible. Some might come and say, ah, you know, there will be those who inherit the kingdom of God who do practice those things because they've prayed the sinner's prayer. But listen, if you believe that, you're deceived. You have no assurance. And then not done, the next verse talks about what happens at conversion. It says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, or you were made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So then, says the Bible, when we're converted, those sinful actions are washed away. The, the inner heart is changed. Once it loved the former sins, now it finds them distasteful and turns from them. Ah, but as I've said before, this is where our uncertainty comes in. Those of us who are at all sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit do find deeply entrenched attitudes of the flesh very much alive in us. Indeed, if you're practicing sins, you're supposed to doubt your salvation. Well, if that's the case, and since no one can be righteous in God's sight, what is to be done? What constitutes the evidence that our hearts have been changed enough? Perhaps I'm still the same person after all, and I've only deceived myself. See, even though a great many of us have been fed, you know, very easy answers, a faithful reading of the New Testament will create an alarm in your heart. And so what is to be done? Is it really possible then to have the assurance that we have been born again or to recognize it when we have been deceived? And so let me put it plainly. In the Bible, I think there are three reasons why we might doubt our salvation. The first reason is the inconsistent Christian life, which seems to go in fits and starts, has plenty of occasions when it stumbles, and in those cases, we need to learn in a fresh way to be led by the Spirit. The second reason why we might doubt our salvation is in the confusion that can come to us when we're suffering. Does God care about me? Maybe he's abandoned me. In those times, we need to learn about those passages that remind us of what God is doing in our sufferings. And the third reason why we might doubt our salvation is that we seem to lack the inner assurance of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, at those moments, we hear the condemnation of our enemy, and at least so it might seem to us, we can't sense the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we are the sons and daughters of God.
I want to say something that is the most important thing that I can say at a time like this. The assurance of salvation is never found by examining how well we're doing. Not that self-evaluation is useless. It's useful. It's essential. But let me read a quote from author Burke Parsons. And before I quote, let me say, if this grabs your soul well, that will tell you a great deal. Here's the quote. Assurance of salvation does not flow from a proud heart that boasts of one's ability to maintain a bold profession of faith. On the contrary, God assures us of our salvation in Christ precisely because our hearts have been broken and humbled by God himself. For it is on account of his ability to maintain his bold possession of our souls that we have assurance. He assures us not by giving us confidence in ourselves, but by bringing us to the end of ourselves so that we might know and love him. That is the brilliance of the glorious gospel of Christ. At every point in our lives and at every blessed act of divine discipline, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Listen, would you, to, to Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you see, if, if your confidence is in your own ability, you lose. There, there is no assurance at all. But what would it be if your confidence came from Christ's power? What if Romans 8.32 is true? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, including our hope in eternity? Listen, doubting brother or sister, yes, become aware of your sin and let that awareness trouble you. Confess your sins at all times to God. Renounce them. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh, but, but, but. In every look at your own sin and your own failure and your own weakness, for every one look at those things, have ten looks at the cross of Jesus and say in your soul, that, that is enough. Nothing good is in me, but everything good is in him. And I don't trust me, but I do trust him. And in that confession, and that confession alone, is eternal life. Say the words of 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us, or me personally, to God. Enough said. I'm content. I'm assured. He took care of it. I have eternal life. John, in the end, I guess, the assurance of our salvation comes in assurance of what Christ has done. And I guess over and over, we need to be reminding ourselves of that. We do. There is this awareness of our own sin. I mean, the Bible calls us to do that. I mean, Jesus commands us to daily confess our sins, and we should. At the same time, we don't despair because of it. You know, for the person who has no awareness of sin, I'm alarmed about you, but for the person who is overwhelmed by their sin, you need to look at the cross and stop looking at yourself and say, he did it for me. Uh, he did it out of love. When he said it was finished, it was finished for me. Uh, I, I just want to say that over and over again. If you're a person who struggles with that, continue to concentrate on the promises of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Be content in God. Thanks so much, John. 
And remember to join us again here tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. <laughs>